Interestingly enough, the Lord worked it out in one of his kind providences that Matt's first sermon when he returned last summer, I was reading the scripture and his last one before he returns, I'll also be reading the scripture that was not planned except by, I think, our Lord in his goodness to me at least. Be reading from the book Isaiah, chapter 65, the verses 17 through 25. You can find that on the pages of the Pew Bibles, the 793 and 94. That's Isaiah 65, starting at verse 17. In honor of God's word, uh, if you are physically able, please stand as I read. This is the word of God given for his people. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. From Psalm 33, the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. You may be seated. Thank you all for loving us these last six months. We got back from Japan at the end of June, and summer went by a little bit slower, and then we hit the fall, and the kids got in school, and I started traveling, and all of a sudden, here we are. And uh, we're just so very grateful for you all as as a body of believers, as brothers and sisters. And uh, I was just talking with Someone yesterday, they were asking me about our mission organization, what it's like to be a missionary, and about raising support, among other things, and they're familiar with the IMB of the Southern Baptist Convention, who their missionaries don't raise support, they, uh, they, all the Southern Baptist Convention churches contribute to a common pot, and then missionaries apply and receive a salary, and they're saying, well, wouldn't that be easier? I said, well, yeah, I think it would, obviously there'd be an element of this that would be easier, but, but we have the benefit of knowing 
the faces of the people that are partnered with us in our work in Japan. And, and that is... Um, it's very, very important to us and very significant. And um, so thank you all for, for serving, um, serving us and serving with us um, in this work. And uh, we love you. Very grateful for you. And... Um, yeah, you can pray for me this morning. I'm in a weird space, as you can tell. Um, uh, I was sick on Christmas, and then uh, yesterday I got, frankly, very angry about something that I need to repent of, and this morning I'm crying during Be Thou My Vision. So I'm all over the place. So um, you, can, uh, you, can, you can pray for me as we, uh, as we look at, at God's Word here. But just know that we love you, and we will, we will miss you, um, but we are uh, honored to be sent uh, by you. Um, as a body of believers um, for the sake of the gospel. So before we come to God's word here, let's, let's pray together. Our Father, you, um, you know our weaknesses, you know our frailties, and yet you are good to us, as we just sang. And Father, we pray now as we turn to your word, that gives us life, Lord, that your spirit would apply it to our hearts in a way that does uh, enliven us, Lord, that those of us that are dry, Lord, that you would give us um, life through your spirit and through your word, those of us who are struggling, Lord, that you would give us comfort, Lord, those of us who are complacent, Lord, would you give us um, motivation uh, because of the work that Jesus has done on our behalf, um, and we pray, Lord, that you would um, use your word uh, by your spirit for your own glory in our lives and in this world that you have made. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Hans Lippershey was a German-Dutch eyeglass maker who was born in 1570. He owned and operated a spectacle shop in the town of Middleburg, which is now part of the Netherlands. Well, one day Hans was walking around his town and he saw some children playing with some spectacle lenses. They were increasing and reducing the distance between the lenses in order to magnify objects that were far away. And this gave Hans an idea. What if I could build a device that would use lenses in order to magnify objects that are really far away? Well, Hans got to work, and in 1608, he submitted his patent for what he called the Looker. Yeah, not a very original name, but that's what he called it, the Looker. I mean, I think it was in Dutch, but it was the looker. And this is widely recognized as the first attempt and effort to build a telescope. Well, the next year, Hans's little looker caught the attention of a man named Galileo Galilei. Now, when Hans made his looker, he could magnify objects up to three times their size. Well, the very next year, Galileo got to work and built his own telescope that could magnify objects up to 20 times their size. You leave it to a guy like Galileo to show you up, right? Well, Galileo, of course, used his telescope to explore the universe visually and literally to transform our understanding of astronomy. And through these observations, among other things, Galileo went on to affirm Copernicus's earlier theory of a heliocentric or a sun-centered universe, that the Earth is not the center of our solar system. So quite literally, Hans Lippershey's telescope has transformed the way that we understand this world that we live in. 
Well, this passage here that we're looking at this morning at the end of Isaiah 65 functions in many ways like a telescope. So with a telescope, we are looking through something that is close in order to see an object that is distant. And similarly, in this closing vision here of Isaiah 65, from Isaiah's perspective, we are looking through something that is close, that is near Israel's restoration from exile. And through that lens, we are able to see an object that is distant, that is far away, the new creation. And like the telescope, this vision of the new creation here in Isaiah 65 should transform our understanding of this world that we live in. By looking through this telescope, we're able to see that not only did Jesus come to die for the sins of his people, not only did he come to bring us forgiveness from the punishment that we have earned for ourselves, he came to inaugurate a new creation, a new reality in which the effects of the fall are no more, sin has been done away with, and life in its fullness is able to be lived. And for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, this is what we have to look forward to for eternity. But first, just a bit of background on this passage. Isaiah the prophet lived and ministered around the year 700 BC. And this was more than 100 years before God would eventually exile his people out to Babylon. Isaiah prophesied, foretold that this exile would come about, but then he also gave oracles concerning the redemption of God's people from exile, that God would one day bring his people back from this punishment. In chapter 64, Isaiah acknowledges that God's people have been um, disobedient to him, that they have um, been unfaithful to him. This is where Isaiah gives his very famous saying that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And then at the end of that chapter, he asks the question, God, will you ever relent of this judgment of exile? Will you ever bring your people back? Well, chapter 65 is God's response to this question. God starts off by recalling how he has pursued Israel, and yet Israel has been unfaithful to him, and therefore they need to be punished. They need to go through the discipline of exile. But God then says, that in his mercy, he won't judge all of his people forever, but only those who forsake him, who continue to disobey him, those who refuse to repent and turn back to him. But those people who seek God, who turn from their sin, who pursue blessing in him, will receive life. Well, this then transitions the oracle to our passage here, this vision of the new creation. And in this passage, this telescopic lens of redemption from exile, which again was very close to Isaiah, is bringing into focus the distant reality of the new creation. And by bringing the new creation into focus, God is seeking to encourage his people back then and now to turn from our sin, to repent in the areas that we need to, to turn back to God, to find our hope and find life in him. And we know from the book of Revelation that when Jesus returns at the end of time to judge the world, that God will indeed judge those who refuse to turn from their sin and put their faith in him. God will cast them into what is called a lake of fire for eternal punishment, and yet those who have turned, who have submitted themselves to Jesus, 
will be renewed and be resurrected and live in what John calls in Revelation 21 a new heaven and a new earth. This is a direct allusion to our passage here in Isaiah 65. God will recreate the world and we will live in that world forever in perfect harmony with God and with one another. And this oracle here in chapter 65 of Isaiah is the first glimpse in the Bible of this eternal reality. And the main point of this oracle is this. Because of God's joy and gladness in us, we will forever experience joy and gladness in him. Because of God's joy and gladness in us, we will forever experience joy and gladness in him. And we can be sure that this is the main point because the roots for joy and gladness each occur three times in these opening verses of this passage. You can see these underlined, and I've actually provided a text structure in your bulletin there. I couldn't help myself. This is the professor in me coming out. This is what I'm looking at when I'm preparing my sermon. I figured it would be helpful for you to look at it as you're listening. This hopefully will show logically how all of these points are tethered together. So this oracle begins with God saying that he will create new heavens, and a new earth. That is a new creation. He then says that the former things will not be remembered or come into mind. Now this is not saying that we are going to have some sort of spiritual amnesia, that we will literally not remember things of the past. Rather, this language is saying that we won't consider or focus our thoughts on the former things in the sense of being preoccupied with them. Instead of recalling and thinking about former things, that is times of pain and heartache during the fallen world, God tells his people to be glad and rejoice in what he will create. And what will he create here? Verse 18, For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. So whereas verse 17 describes God's creation as new heavens and a new earth, verse 18 describes it as a new Jerusalem. So here, God's people, their restoration to Jerusalem is the telescope, is the lens that brings into focus God's future restoration of the world. These two phenomena are being described in overlapping ways. The return from exile in Babylon we could think of as a, a microcosm or a microversion of the much larger return of God's people out of our exile away from God's presence in Eden. So rather than perpetuating the pain and sorrow that God's people have earned because we have rejected God, in his mercy, God will restore his people and give them joy and gladness in his new creation. And this joy and gladness then that God's people will experience is grounded in the joy and gladness that God has in them. And this is basically what the rest of this oracle goes on to spell out. So verse 19 begins with God saying this, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. So this is the third occurrence of these two roots here, clarifying and underscoring that this is the overarching theme of this passage. And then the rest of the oracle goes on to describe what it means for God to rejoice and be glad in his people in this new creation, in his act of redemption. So how is God's joy and gladness in his people demonstrated here in the new creation? Well, there are five ways, and these are the five boxes there that you see there in that text handout. So the first is this. In the new creation, God's people 
will live full lives. We will live full lives. We see this in the latter half of verse 19 and then in verse 20. So first we're told in verse 19 that there will be no more weeping or cries of distress. And the reason for this lack of sorrow is then further explained in verse 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. That is, life will not end prematurely in the new creation. Why is that? For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now, this verse has given many interpreters some problems because it seems to suggest that death is going to be part of the new creation. But we need to remember that we're not looking at this new creational reality up close. Rather, we're looking at it through a telescope. And although this telescope is bringing this distant reality into focus, we are viewing that reality from a particular perspective. And in this case, that perspective is Israel in exile. And when Israel went through the judgment of exile, they experienced much premature death and suffering. Specifically, those people who were physically the weakest, so infants and the elderly, were most likely to um, lose their lives prematurely throughout the difficulties of being conquered and carried away and living in poor conditions. So what this oracle is saying is that when God redeems his people and recreates the world for them, this experience of heartache from premature death will be no more. The point of saying the young man will die a hundred years old is not to posit the reality of death in the new creation. We know from Revelation 21 that there will be no death in the new creation. Rather, the point of this statement is to give a concrete example of the lack of distress that God's people had been experiencing at that time. People's lives will not be cut short in the new creation. We will live full lives. And as we discover later in Scripture, these full lives are actually eternal lives. Well, the last clause of verse 20 reiterates this in an inverse manner, though there's a translational issue here that we have to deal with. So in the ESV, it renders this clause, and the sinner, a hundred years old, shall be accursed. Now this term sinner in Hebrew is a participle. So uh, in English, a participle would be an ing word. So literally, this is saying, and the sinning one. And the term sin in Hebrew means to miss the mark or to miss the goal. So that's why we define sin as any violation of God's law. When we sin, we miss the mark of God's standard. Well, in verse 20 here, because this participle is followed by 100 years, this phrase could mean the one missing the mark of 100 years or the one falling short of 100 years. So understood this way, these two lines are saying, the young man shall die at 100 years old. That is, people's lives will not be cut short the way it so often happens now. But rather, the person who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. So read this way, these two lines are saying the same thing, just in a different way. That is, reaching 100 years old, living a full life, will be normal, will be regular. For one not to do that, they would be considered cursed. This is actually how most English translations render this phrase. So the NRSV, for example, says, and the one who falls short of 100, 
or the NASB, the one who does not reach the age of 100, or the NIV, he who fails to reach 100. And actually this morning I was thinking about this and I even looked at the Japanese translation that I use. And sure enough, it says, the one who does not make it to 100. Now to me, this makes much more sense of this phrase within this context. So rather than suggesting that a sinner who lives a long life will be considered cursed, which doesn't really make sense and doesn't fit this context as well, this clause seems to be saying that living a full life will be the norm in the new creation. And again, just to be clear, this verse is also not suggesting that cursing will be present in the new creation either. Once again, this is illustrating the regularity of a full life in terms that would have spoken to ancient Israelites back then. So what is the first way that God will rejoice and be glad in his people in the new creation? By giving us full lives. Do you ever feel like your life is passing you by? Do you have regrets for the ways that things have gone in your life? Or do you worry about the way that things are going to go in your life from here on out? I'm convinced that one of the most prevalent problems that Western Christians face these days is the irrepressible desire to live our best life now as defined by our surrounding culture. We believe that we need to experience the good life now because many, if not most Christians, view eternal life as a disembodied, immaterial existence on clouds where all we're going to get to do is sing, and maybe if you're really lucky, you'll get a harp. And frankly, if we're honest with ourselves, that doesn't sound that exciting to do that same thing forever. So we think that we need to experience the best of life right now or else we're going to miss it. But what Scripture tells us is that eternal life will be a physical existence on a material world where we will be able to live life to the fullest. Now, the period of time between our death and when Jesus returns will be immaterial. This is when we are separated from our bodies. This is an effect of the fall. This is what theologians refer to as the intermediate state. But they call it that intermediate state because there is something beyond. That is the eternal state. And that's what this passage is referring to. But a lot of Christians tend to view the intermediate state as eternal life. And that's not terribly inspiring. But when Jesus returns, we will receive resurrected bodies the very same way that he has received a resurrected body. And at that time, God will remake this world into a sinless paradise where we will be able to live full lives with God and with one another. So we don't need to worry about missing out on anything in this life now because any amount of satisfaction that we might experience now, brothers and sisters, is just a drop in the bucket compared to the eternal life and satisfaction that we will live in. Well, not only will God's people live full lives, secondly, in the new creation, God's people will be secure. We see this in verses 21 and 22. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. Now, when Israel went into exile, 
The homes and livelihoods for which they had labored were all taken away from them. Others benefited from the building and the planting that God's people had done. Here God is saying that this type of situation will not be the case in the new creation. And the reason for this then is given in the latter half of verse 22. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Now in the Old Testament, when tree imagery is used in a simile like this, it almost always refers to stability or security. Perhaps the most well-known example is in Psalm 1, where the psalmist says that the one who lives his life according to the Torah is like a tree planted by streams of water. That person is stable. That person is secure. And this security, then, is the reason why in our passage, God's people will long enjoy the work of their hands. So not only will God's people live full lives in this new creation, these full lives will never be in jeopardy. We will be secure. Now this is one of the reasons why we should not think of this eternal life, this eternal state, as a return to Eden. Now to be sure, the new creation is described in Eden-like terms. There are similarities between the two. But there's a significant difference. In the Garden of Eden, even though humanity had no sin at the beginning, there was always the possibility of sin. There was always the possibility of a fall. There was always a possibility that that paradise existence would come to an end. In the new creation, however, the fullness of life that we will experience there will be secure with no chance of sin and therefore no chance of a fall and therefore no chance that that paradise existence will ever come to an end. And this connection to Eden and the fall is then made explicit by the third way in which the new creation reveals God's joy and gladness in us. In the new creation, God's work of redemption will be complete. So if you look at verse 23, it says, They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. Now this seems to be an allusion to God's curse on the man and the woman after the fall into sin into Genesis 3. So there, after Adam and Eve rebel, God says to the man that his labor is going to be difficult from now on, that the ground is going to fight back, that it will produce thorns and thistles. And he says to the woman that he will multiply her pain in childbearing. So whereas humanity's work in childbearing has been afflicted because of the fall, this major effect of the sin will be no more in the new creation. Now as was the case in the verses above that describe death, this verse is not suggesting that there will be new people born in the new creation. It's not saying that there will be new children. As Jesus tells us, in eternity we will neither marry nor be given in marriage and therefore there will be no more, no additional humans. The point here is to say that these painful effects of the fall that have plagued humanity throughout the entirety of our existence will be done away with when God renovates the world. Reinforcing this then is the second half of verse 23. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. This is an allusion to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. In that passage, 
God says to Abraham that in you, and later on he'll say, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And this call of Abraham in Genesis 12 with its corresponding promise to bless him and all the nations is the beginning of God's major work of redemption, of reversing the curse that was brought about at the fall. And in Galatians chapter 3, Paul calls this promise to Abraham the gospel beforehand. And he goes on to say that those who have faith in Jesus are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what we see here in Isaiah's vision is a foreshadowing, not only of the final reversal of the curse that happened at the fall, but also of the means by which that curse will be reversed. God will extend his blessing to all nations through Abraham's descendant, Jesus, in order to redeem us from the fall. And in so doing, God will begin to restore the entirety of his fallen creation. It's very easy for us to think of our status as Christians in an overly personal way, especially here in North America. Evangelicalism over the last 40 years in particular has become enamored with the phrase that you will not find anywhere in the Bible, a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, of course, I'm not saying that God relates to us impersonally. I'm not saying that he doesn't have a personal love for us. But the pervasive emphasis on having a personal relationship with Jesus has pushed certain segments of Christianity into an overly individualistic understanding of the Christian life in general and of our salvation in particular. We have been lulled into the false belief that we can individualize and compartmentalize our Christian faith, that Christianity is fundamentally a series of propositions that we assent to intellectually but aside from that, the rest of our life pretty much goes the way it did before. Our priorities overall don't really change in a dramatic way. But this text highlights that Jesus' work of redemption, which is the culmination of God's promise to Abraham, is God's response to the cosmic treason that happened at Eden. And it is that which triggers or initiates God's work of new creation, of the restoration of the entirety of this reality that we know. When Jesus was born, lived, died, and rose again, he wasn't simply taking our punishment upon him so that we don't have to experience it. He certainly did that, and we praise him for it. But he didn't die and rise simply to have a personal relationship with us so that we can get on with our lives, but it's just a bit better now. Jesus was opening the door for the new creation to break into the present right now. Now, and because Christians, because we are united to Christ when we put our faith in him, we have entered the inaugurated reality of this new creation right now. This is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, behold, the new has come. Now, of course, we don't experience the fullness of the new creation now. We live in what is called the already and not yet. But we do experience a foretaste of it through the outpoured presence of the Holy Spirit. 
What we need to realize is that when we become a Christian, we are not simply affirming a new set of propositions. We are doing that, but we are doing much, much more. We are entering an entirely new world. The inaugurated new creation that is not visible to the eyes of the world here, but is knowable and experienced by those who have put their faith in Jesus. And therefore, our concerns, our priorities, our hopes, and our dreams should undergo a dramatic shift when we become citizens of this new creation. Well, fourth, in bringing us into this new creation, God takes the initiative. This is the fourth way that he shows his joy and gladness in us, by taking the initiative, not waiting for us. So verse 24, it says, Before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. So this verse describes both the redemptive initiative that God takes with his people, as well as the attentive relationship that he has with them after he redeems them. And the significance of this verse is very simple. For Israel in exile... God would answer their call for help even before they utter it. God would take the initiative. And when they do pray to him and speak to him and turn back to him, God will always be there. He always receives people who repent and turn to him. And just as God would take the initiative in bringing Israel back from that smaller exile from Babylon, so does he take the initiative in bringing us back from that larger macro exile away from his presence in Eden that all of us have experienced. Before we ever knew what we needed, God had planned to send his son Jesus to come and live and die and rise so that even though we die, death would not be the final word. God took the initiative to send Jesus so that we might enter this new creation with him. And we see this truth spelled out most explicitly here in the final section of this passage. And this is the fifth way that God shows his joy and gladness. God brings us into the new creation through the coming of his son. So verse 25 portrays a scene of tranquility in the realm of nature, the absence of harm or death. This is indicating that life in the new creation will not be characterized by pain and death the way it is now. But two aspects of this verse are especially noteworthy for us. The first, after describing both the wolf and the lion here as these sweet little herbivores, it says that the dust shall be the serpent's food. Well, this recalls God's curse on the serpent in the garden, where he says that dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So while redemption and harmony will be achieved for all creation, the effects of the fall on the man and the woman will be no more. God's curse against Satan at the fall will be finalized, will be solidified. As we've already seen, there will be no risk of another fall. Well, secondly, this description of harmony in the created order alludes to an earlier passage in Isaiah that uses well, in some cases, the exact same language, but very similar imagery. And in this earlier passage, this is in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah tells us what initiates this harmonious new creation. So I'm going to be reading here from Isaiah 11, 1 to 9. Here the text says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that is from David's line, 
and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Skipping down to verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then we get the same imagery that we've read in Isaiah 65. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Herbivores. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, exactly the same as Isaiah 65, 25. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What will initiate this new creational reality is the coming of the stump of Jesse, a descendant of David who will live by the Spirit, who will be characterized by righteousness and faithfulness. And this, of course, is none other than the Lord Jesus himself. So this verse solidifies what verse 23 also hinted at, that when Jesus came to earth and specifically when he rose from the dead, the new creation began breaking into the present era. The only way that we can enter this new creation, the only way that we inherit the promises of this oracle and the hope that goes along with those promises is by putting our faith in Jesus, by trusting in his sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, and then by endeavoring to align our life under his kingly authority through repentance and faith. The question for all of us here this morning is, are we doing this? If someone were to look at every aspect of your life, at your work, your family, your finances, your recreation, your aspirations, would they conclude that your citizenship is in the new creation? Would they conclude that Jesus is your king and the most important thing in your life? Or would they conclude that you are seeking your joy and gladness in the things of this world? Now, being a citizen of the new creation, of course, doesn't mean that we disengage from this world. It doesn't even mean that we can't enjoy good things in this world. But it does mean that we view our existence in this world as fundamentally for the sake of King Jesus and his glory in every realm of our lives, not just in our spiritual church compartment. Like the telescope, This vision of a new creation should completely transform the way that we understand this world that we live in and our existence in it, the reason that we're here. Rather than living for ourselves and seeking to consume what we can in order to try to live our best life now because we think that this is our shot, this vision frees us to live sacrificially for the sake of Jesus' name now. I'm going to be honest, this was a good passage for me to be reflecting on a week before we leave a place that we love and go across the world. I don't have to worry about what I might be missing out in some alternate existence that I envision for myself. 
because Jesus has sacrificed himself in order to bring us into this new creational reality. We can live for his glory as citizens of that reality and have the hope of this joy and gladness that he has for us in the future. And brothers and sisters, it's that hope that then will enable us to have joy and gladness now, even in the midst of the difficulties of this life. Because of God's joy and gladness in us, we will forever experience joy and gladness in him. And so as you look forward to this new year, I'd encourage you to enter it with one eye fixed on this biblical telescope. Be reminded that this life is not all that there is. Jesus has inaugurated the new creation. And if you are in him, if you have put your trust in him, you have remarkable reason to persevere and to live with hope and to live sacrificially and radically for the sake of his name in whatever sphere of life he has called you to. Let us all live in light of that reality. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you that you are wise. We thank you, Lord, that you are patient. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful. We thank you that you are merciful. And we thank you for bringing us into fellowship with yourself through the sacrifice of your Son and through the ministry of your Spirit, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would put hope into our hearts here this morning from this text, Lord, that you would remind us of the future that we have as your people. And Lord, that knowledge of that future would enable us to live in a way in the present that people would look at us and frankly think that we are crazy. Lord, would you be pleased to glorify yourself through us? Would you help us, God, to be faithful despite our frailty and finitude as we seek to honor you in our lives? And most of all this morning, God, we praise you for the work of your Son who has paid for our sins through his suffering and who has brought in your new creation into our midst through the Holy Spirit, Lord. We give you all honor and praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.